2 Corinthians chapter 9. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, For God loves the cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous, in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of the submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Will they long for you? pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Good morning. You may be seated. Let's open here in, in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. I, you know my heart, God. You know that I don't want any of this to be about me. So I pray that by your grace, God, you would turn our eyes to you and to your word, and that by your spirit, God, I pray that you would, um, that I would stay faithful to your word, and that we would see in the word uh, in a deeper way who you are and who the gospel is and what you're calling us to. Father, I just acknowledge that I don't bring anything to the table here. Um, it's all of you, and I'm desperately dependent upon your grace this morning. I pray that you'd be with us and encourage us in the word. I pray this in your name. Amen. I've been uh, just deeply encouraged as I study this passage as I've, as, as I've been for um, the past couple times I've preached. Uh, this year I had the privilege to do that and deep dive into a passage that's just been so deeply encouraging, and I'm so thankful for the opportunity to do that, and it's encouraged me to try to find ways to really study the Word in a deeper way in my normal habits, not just when I'm uh, pressed into doing that with a teaching opportunity, but that said, I'm just excited to bring, um, to, to preach on this passage this morning, and particularly because I believe this passage addresses a key temptation in our time. 
in our context, uh, just as the Corinthian context. And I believe that it will be, therefore, a great encouragement and blessing to you. We live in an era of Bitcoin dreaming. How many of you know what Bitcoin is? All right, a little more than last night. But uh, Bitcoin's a cryptocurrency and, and, and it has had huge returns over the last 10 years. Or Dogecoin or Dogecoin, like 12,000% return on investment over the last, what, year? I mean, that's something that just stirs our 21st century hearts to the core. If you're anything like me, you're thinking about, like, what if? What if I had invested? You know, this amount, 10 years ago, and you're pulling up the online calculator, and you're like, how many tens of millions would I have now? And you get caught up in, in just thinking about wealth. Maybe it's not cryptocurrency. Maybe it's thinking about how do I develop more revenue streams and business ideas and, and dreaming and desiring wealth and what you could do with that, the houses, the cars, the vacations, really the freedom of having this wealth. Well, in this passage, God did some work in the heart of this Bitcoin dreamer this past couple weeks, and he, and he exposed in me desires for wealth in a way that led me to repentance. And he exposed in me what is, I believe, one in the same um, worldview, or a fruit of that worldview, which is a, a reluctance in my generosity. And I don't think I would have identified it that strongly. That's the nature of sin, right? It's deceptive. We need the Word of God to cut us open and expose our motives. But it showed up, this reluctance, and not just uh, how we've given, but, or, or how much we've given, but just the underlying feeling of, of counting giving as, as loss at some level. You know, we've, we have given, you know, we've always done that, you know, somewhere around 10% sounds biblical, so check it off the list, feel better. But God's just been working in me, and through this passage, and exposing these things in my heart. And I wonder if just briefly, as we talk about this, if this, um, if you might struggle with the same thing, this this desire for wealth, or, or Bitcoin dreaming, or perhaps a, a, just a reluctance in your generosity, have you? Is it possible that you, at least in part, have counted giving as loss? If so, I think you're going to hear great freedom and encouragement and blessing in this passage. You're going to hear a call for a major paradigm shift that leads to deeper joy and deeper meaning. And if this isn't you, if by God's grace you're, you're living in generosity in the paradigm of the kingdom of God, I pray this will just encourage you. It'll press you on as you walk in obedience to the word. So my goal here in this sermon, giving is gain, is that we would be freed, we'd find freedom from the, the tyranny and the danger of desiring wealth. To turn instead in cheerful, faith-filled generosity. So let's dive into the passage here. If you haven't already, turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 9. Remember, Corinthians, um, this book, Paul, the apostles, writing to the church in Corinth. And their context is similar to ours in many ways. It's a, a church with wealth. They're in a, in a community, a context that seems to be caught up in worldliness and sensuality. Paul, their father in the faith, is writing to them yet again to correct them and encourage them and to instruct them. And throughout this whole letter, he's showing us a way of life, one that is compelled by the love of Christ. 
He's showing us this way, this crucified life, following after Jesus, our example. Two weeks ago, Pastor Dan um, preached on chapter 8. And now as we move into chapter 9, we see in both these chapters that Paul has shifted uh, or transitioned into talking about giving, and specifically giving for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. So let's jump right in, understanding that wider context to our passage in chapter 1. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia. He's, he's saying here that now is, it is superfluous for me to write to you. I believe he's saying, like, I'm sure, in other words, I'm, sur- I'm sure I don't need to remind you about this, but I know we've already talked about this, but like, it's superfluous for me to talk about the ministry of, of giving to the saints, for I know your readiness which I've boasted about you. And we know that Paul, if we go back to 1 Corinthians 16, had instructed the church to put something aside and store it up as they prosper for this, for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. We know back in chapter 8, in, in verse 10 and 11, that they had not only, a year ago, had not only started to do this work, but they desired to do it. In verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 9, if you look, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you had promised. They had started to do this. They desired to do this. They had promised to do this. And and Paul here, both back in chapter 8 and now in chapter 9, is urging them to finish, to follow through, to complete this work. And you can see he's in a little bit of a sticky situation because he's boasted about their readiness to the Macedonian church. We read in the second half of verse 2, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. And the Macedonian church had turned in their poverty to be generous, deeply, overflowingly generous. And Paul is saying, you need to prove yourselves and prove himself, Paul, true for boasting about their, their heart, their desire, their readiness to give. So Paul is sending people ahead to collect this gift so it would be as a willing gift, and not as an exaction. We see Paul here is seeking to preserve the honor of the Corinthian church in the eyes of their brothers and sisters in Christ. One commentator said, to Paul, like a father, he expresses confidence in them. A confidence, he tells them, that he's expressed to others. And so he instructs them here to save them and himself from a situation where there would be shame and dishonor. Not just to them, but ultimately to the name of Christ. I think the beauty here of of this text is that Paul doesn't just stop here. The Holy Spirit working through Paul isn't just concerned about like, hey, let's finish this out. Let's get this done. The text doesn't end here. But Paul moves on to address the heart. Because God is concerned about the heart. And we we can draw from what he's instructing here, that he's writing this to the Corinthians in this context, that, it, that this delay wasn't just a practical delay, but there were heart issues at play. There was need for instruction about the principles of giving. I think we're in the same boat. At least I know I am. This was deeply beneficial for me to address the heart issues behind this topic. So how are we to view giving? What are the, what are the heart issues at play here? Well, let's continue in the text in verse 6. The point is this, 
Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You have to love it when you're preparing for a sermon or a teaching, and you're like, God, show me the point of this passage. And then you read, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Or the Greek structure um, is almost poetic. Whoever sows sparingly, sparingly they will reap. Whoever sows bountifully, bountifully they will reap. Of course, the picture of sowing seed, of planting. If you're stingy with how much seed you put out, you're going to get a stingy harvest. If you sow bountifully, you'll have a bountiful harvest. God, of course, here is, is not just interested in the quantity of our giving, but in the quality of our giving. And he says we're not to give reluctantly. We're not to give in a way that's disinclined or, or from a hesitant heart. Like, I don't really want to, but sure, take my money. <laughs> Perhaps um, an example here would be guilt-induced giving. This was key and instructive for me. When I look at my heart, like, okay, I do this calculation. The hurt of giving, it hurts to give. But it hurts a little less than the hurt of guilt if I didn't give. So I'll give. That's not what God wants in our giving. He doesn't want us to give reluctantly. He doesn't want us to give under compulsion. This clearly is related to this reluctant giving. Both are fruits of a worldview that desires wealth that finds joy in the gift apart from the giver. We're told here each one must give as he has decided in his heart. This also is really helpful to me. I, I, I would have expected Paul to say, each one must give as the Lord leads you, right? That's good. We believe that the Spirit will guide us. Even in specific things like giving, we should pray for that and seek that. But Paul here doesn't say that. He says each one must give as he's decided in his heart. And I wonder if sometimes we've hyper-spiritualized or mysticized giving in this idea of just, oh, I'm just going to wait for God's leading, can turn into an excuse. And I love the picture here Paul paints of us deciding to give cheerfully by faith in the promises of God, making a decision to live generously, not reluctantly or under compulsion. I love, as an example of this, how Dan talked about budgeting an intentional budgeting and planning as a way of this cheerful, faith-filled decision to give. God loves, the last section of this verse, God loves a cheerful giver. Why? Cheerful giving displays that the glory belongs to Christ, that he is our treasure. Cheerful giving shows our confidence, our faith, is in our good Father who provides for us, and that shows honor to Him when we trust Him in that way. This cheerful, faith-filled decision to live generously shows a freedom from the worldview of our age, the desire for wealth, and it reflects the power of the gospel in your life. It reflects the way of Jesus. I want to uh, bring in an illustration here of a water spigot. Uh, in this illustration, we're the valve there on the top of this spigot. And if we're sitting there and this is all we see, this spigot sticking out of the wall, we're, we're like, okay, I know there's some water in this pipe, but I don't know how much. So we, we open the valve a little bit and we shut it. We open it. And in so doing, we don't experience a lot of water flowing through our, our spigot. We don't experience a lot 
of the grace of God. But what if we realized that on the other side of this wall was just a massive reservoir? And I know this makes no geographical sense, but it fed into this reservoir was the Pacific Ocean, near unlimited supply of water. How would that change how we control that spigot? Well, we wouldn't operate out of self-protection or this need to conserve. Man, we'd open that spigot up. And then we'd experience so much more of, of the water, of, of the grace of God flowing through our life. And I think this realization of an unlimited source of water on the other side of that wall is an illustration of us realizing and putting faith in the incredible promises of God. To have confidence in these promises, to have confidence in his future provision. That his grace is there for us today and it will be there for us tomorrow and that we can live in this freedom to pour ourselves out in cheerful, faith-filled generosity. So let's move on in our text and look at these incredible promises. Verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely to the poor. Or he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. This is amazing. I love that God here, he doesn't just say, like, I'll give you enough. Like, you're going to get by, hold on. When you die, you go to heaven, it'll be good. <laughs> he says, overflowing sufficiency, all sufficiency in all things at all times, enabling you to abound in every good work. This is an incredible promise. And this is the gospel. This is the empowering grace of God upon our lives. This is the result of us being brought into peace with God through the blood of Christ with God who pours out of himself. He's a benevolent God. He's a giving God. He's a loving God. He's the one who's gone before us, Jesus, who though he was rich, as it says in chapter 8, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might be rich. He will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. He'll increase the harvest of your righteousness. It's these incredible promises that are the backbone the driving factor behind cheerful, faith-filled generosity. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. This is the kingdom of God. We are blessed to be a blessing. We are poured into to pour ourselves out. And as we pour ourselves out, we find that we experience more of God's grace than if we had lived in self-protection. This is a key principle throughout the word. We see in, in Genesis, Abraham, I will, God promised to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. We see it in Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth and your saving power among the nations. This is just a completely different paradigm than the self-seeking and self-protectionism of the world. I think when we look at these verses, um, if you're like me, you, you almost cringe a little bit, though. Like there's this instinct to avoid it, to avoid really diving into these verses because of the, 
misuse of these verses by the prosperity gospel and word of faith movement. Without question, these have been twisted in a way that is wrong. You know, where, where someone on TV is, you know, like, give me $10 and the Lord will bless you with 10000 next week. Or um, I was in a, a hospital room. I, I worked as a nurse for a number of years, and I was in a hospital room with a patient who had cancer. And, and this person on TV was like, buy this special anointing oil. And they're doing this under the name of Christ. And it will cure your cancer. What? Poison. The word of faith, the prosperity gospel, says that the gospel purchases for us, what it purchases is our health and our wealth. And if you're lacking in those areas, you, you clearly just need more faith. Or really, more realistically, you just need to give more to whoever's telling you those lies. I don't have time to like fully unpack and, and debunk the prosperity gospel. I just quickly want to give three reasons why it is so wrong and so dangerous. One, it shifts the focus to the giver or to the gift rather than the giver. And in so doing, it robs glory from God. Two, it promises what the Bible doesn't promise. We're promised to experience suffering and persecution. Look at, if you want to debunk the prosperity gospel, look at the life of Jesus. Look at the life of Paul. It's clear that we're to live in Jesus' example and look towards the rewards of the next life. Number three, it reinforces, the prosperity gospel reinforces our natural, fleshly, materialistic, self-centered worldview by, and this is just blasphemous, by lifting up the gospel as a means to our own personal success. Instead of lifting up the gospel as a salvation from the eternal damnation that we deserve for our sin and glorifying Christ who laid down his life so that we can be united with him and have the privilege of serving him in this life and eternal reward in the next. So let's just recognize clearly the prosperity gospel is wrong. It's done damage. But at the same time, let's fully embrace the word of God. Because if Satan can't get us to bite on the prosperity gospel, what he'd love for us to do is in a reaction to that, to avoid believing his word in these verses that have been misused. And if we just avoid these parts of scripture, what we end up doing is just living in accordance to the materialism of our day. A sort of pseudo-prosperity gospel by default, where we value wealth, we desire wealth, excuse me, we desire wealth, we perhaps reluctantly give here and there, but we miss out on the joy and the freedom and the experience of the grace of God that's painted in these, in these passages. We must recognize that we're in a battle between these two worldviews, these truth claims of, of self-centered materialism and, and of gospel contentment. Briefly, just want to dig into that a little bit further. So if you can open your Bibles, if, if you have them, and we'll have it up on the screen too, to 1 Timothy um, We'll address, we'll jump there to 1 Timothy 6 in just a second. But there's two paradigms at war. The world says, lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth, right? Matthew 6 says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. The world says, desire wealth, build up revenue streams, live for yourself. Danger and riches? What danger? Listen to what Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Jump down to verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin 
in destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is a severe warning. It's right after this passage that we heard Tom Harkis preach from last week, where Paul says to Timothy, but you, O man of God, flee these things. We ought to take this seriously. He says, it is through this craving some have wandered away from the faith. This desire for wealth, this love for money has cost souls. So as he says later, we should fight the fight of faith to find our supreme joy and satisfaction in God. Look further down in verse 17 of chapter 6. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us everything to enjoy. Let's not be haughty. Let's not be proud to think that we can successfully navigate desiring wealth and serving God. That we can successfully navigate, you know, I know the word says this, but I think I can do this. Oh, don't be proud. Beware of the dangers of desiring wealth and of love of money. Let's take these warnings seriously. Let's set our hopes not on riches, but on God. And enjoy the gifts he's given. Right? He's given us these things to enjoy. But to recognize in our fallen nature, in our fleshly state, that we're prone to desire the gifts over the giver. So let's guard ourselves against this. And, and how can we do this? Giving is a way we can do this. Paul talks, or yeah, Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 talks about giving as an act of grace. And I think it's helpful to think of giving as uh, not just an act of grace, but a means of grace. The old writers would talk about like prayer and, and reading and fasting and being with God's people as a means of grace. They're activities through which we experience the grace of God. Giving is a means of grace. It's, it's a way that we, by faith, can align ourselves with the kingdom of God. We can find greater freedom from the, the, in the tyranny and the danger of the desire for wealth. It's a tool in our fight. Giving is a way to guard ourselves against this, this danger, to make war against sin, to, to help recenter our joy and our satisfaction on God. No one can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, Jesus said, serve God and money. Let's continue in our text in verse 11. I want to encourage you as we read this to think about what God is doing, both in the giver and in the recipient, as they walk in obedience to the Lord. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of the service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution to them and for others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. We see that the giver in this passage makes this cheerful, faith-filled decision to give, believing Christ to be their provision and their satisfaction. And God supplies then abundant, multiplying grace to the giver. And the recipient not only has their needs supplied, but responds in overflowing thankfulness to God. Their heart is turned, as we see in verse 14, in longing and in prayer towards the giver. 
They rejoice and glorify God as they see the evidence of the gospel in their life. And God increases this harvest of righteousness. Giving is so much more than giving. Giving is so much more than just a transaction. It's a participation in this glorious dance of faith and joy and dependence and answered prayer and strengthened relationships. And most of all, a testimony to the world of the grip of the gospel upon the people of God and the surpassing value of Christ. I want to speak here as, as we begin to draw to a close about an example that I found over the last couple of weeks that was deeply encouraging to me. John Piper, many of you uh, have heard of him. He's a pastor for many years. He's written somewhere around 55 books, highly sought after speaker. Early in his ministry, he said he realized that there was a lot of potential for financial success through his writing and speaking. And so he intentionally planned for that. He put, a quote, a governor on laying up treasures on earth. Otherwise, little by little, I might assume that my wants were my needs and that my expenses would expand as they always do to fill the income. As part of this, he and his wife put in place a graduated tithe from the beginning. That is, we tried to give a greater percentage with each salary increase, not just a greater amount. As his book sales really started to take off, he decided all the royalties, all the royalties from his books would go directly to a foundation just to be given away to the ministry. He said, I never doubted that the Lord would provide for us with a salary that would be sufficient for our family. So I saw no reason to keep the money that came in from the books from the speaking. I know this is within the ministry world, but think of what is happening here. That he's writing books, hard work. This is his line of work. 55 revenue streams, right? And he's like, well, I, don't, I have a salary, so I don't need that, so I'm just going to give that all away. I was telling a friend of mine about this, and he, he just looked at me, and he's like, there's a man who knows it's more blessed to give than to receive. There's a man who's tasted the freedom of being free from the paradigm of this world, this desire for wealth, to live in joyful generosity, trusting in the grace and provision of God. That's an example I want to emulate in my life. As we consider this passage, what does this mean for us? How can we walk in obedience to the word of God here? I think it'd be good just to consider, what is your paradigm? Have you been caught up, even in part, by, by a desire for wealth, by Bitcoin dreaming? Have you been trying to serve two masters, thinking, fooling yourself that you can be successful in doing that? Find freedom from the danger and the tyranny of that desire for wealth and love for money in cheerful, faith-filled giving. Live with confidence in the future provision and the grace that's been promised by God. Store up treasures in heaven. As Dan talked about last week, intentionally budget to give. Our budgets display our hearts. This, the concept of like first fruit budgeting or what do we do when we get a bonus? What do we think of first? Those things display our hearts in these areas. Then just briefly on an extremely practical level, I thought it'd be valuable to talk about how uh, our church as the missions team thinks about giving. We give, one, to ministries or people that are centered on the gospel. Their main thrust being disciple-making, church planning, gospel work, right? It doesn't mean that they're not doing other stuff, which is important display of the love of Christ, but the, the main emphasis is on the gospel. We support 
I can see it back in the Welcome Center there. We have this grid. In the top right corner, we support long-term relational work over one-time transactional work. And third, we're, we're willing to reevaluate this work. I think it's wise to build in times or to periodically think about reevaluating giving, not to be fickle givers, but to ask the question, like, has this been what we thought it would be? Is this truly gospel work? Is this long-term uh, relational work? How can we steward God's resources in the best way? I'd encourage you to have those conversations and to consider how you can grow in this way of cheerful, faith-filled giving. I pray that this has been an encouragement to you, and I pray this will be a tool in your life to make war against sin and to bring glory to God, that it be a, a witness to the world of the power of the gospel and the, and the supremacy of Christ in your life. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your word. And we thank you, God, for, for saving us from, from sin and just the entrapment and death of self-centeredness and self-provision to, to open up a way for us to walk in union with you, to be conduits of your grace, to pour ourselves out, to take part in what is most meaningful and joyful in this life, which is, which is following you. And I pray that in this church there would just be an overflow of confidence in the, the all-sufficient grace of God, that there would be an abounding in every good work for your glory. And I pray this in your name. Amen.